I've got a lot of cousins in East Texas because I'm from there, and, and most of them are teachers. Most of them went to Stephen F. Austin and got trained as teachers, and they're all teachers, and I've heard teacher talk all my life. I decided I never wanted to be a teacher. All due respect, I'm married to one, but, you know, enough is enough. One of my cousins was actually a coach and then a principal and a superintendent. And he, he can do the East Texas thing better than anybody I know. He wears overalls now that he's in retirement, and he loves to put on the East Texas. I mean, an accent that's so East Texas that East Texas people can't understand him. And I remember years ago when he first became an administrator, he went to a conference. And I said, well, what did you learn at the conference? He said, there is no such thing as a bad kid. Only kids who have made a series of bad decisions. <laughs> Some, somehow it sounded a little facetious the way he did it. I don't know. I don't know, you know, because he was, the, he was the guy that had to administer the discipline. So maybe there were a few kids that may have been bad. But, but the reality is that all of us know that, that our lives really is, our lives really are in many ways a product of the decisions we've made. Uh, the decisions we make have a huge impact in the way our lives will go. And, and even though we live in an era where we like to blame our circumstances and our parents and everything else, we deep down we know that the decisions we make are, are determinative in, in our lives. So one of the great concerns we have for our children is the decisions they'll make, that they'll make good decisions. For, you know, for we, we pray that... that that they'll associate with good friends because if they get in the wrong crowd and they follow along with the crowd, they can make bad decisions and end up in trouble. We, you know, we pray for who they'll marry because one of the most significant decisions they make well, who their li- is who their life partner will be. And if, if they make a good decision, then that can bring incredible joy. And if they make a rough decision, then, then life can be pretty rough. Some of us even prayed for what school our children went to. Got them tennis scholarships. For a price. You know what I'm saying? Did, did you notice that no one bribed A&M or OU to get in? <laughs> I'm just saying. It was an elite school that they wanted to get into. So, um, no, I mean, they're, they're, okay, I'm just kidding, right? Um, the reality, trust me, no one bribed to get me in. Um, <laughs> Although there was a picture going around with my head superimposed on a female tennis player. So um, they, the, the reality is that, that we know intuitively the decisions we make will be incredibly significant. We're doing a series on Jesus' story about the prodigal son. And it's one of the most loved of all of Jesus' parables. It's one that we all have heard all our lives, and, and it's a story that, that resonates with all of us. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to take the aspects of it to help us understand better the truth of God, not only as it relates to the story of the prodigal, but as it relates to the gospel as a whole. So I've called it the prodigal gospel. Last week, we pointed out that Jesus chooses to tell a story where God is characterized as a father. And so we delved into a little bit, what does that imply that God is our father? And I I took you to Deuteronomy of all places and the Song of Moses, chapter 32, where God first and most significantly identifies himself as our heavenly father. And as you walk through Moses' song, which is given in the context of Moses passing on the torch of leadership from himself to Joshua, we see how God is our father. First of all, he gave us life. 
He created us in the same way our earthly fathers are the source of our human lives. And secondly, He, he provided for Israel. He, he blessed them with an inheritance and things that they needed in the same way that our human fathers provided for us normally and, and the prodigal father, prodigal's father provided for him. And then we saw that He protected the nation of Israel, just as the role of a father is implied in earth to protect his family and his children. And finally, and maybe not quite so happily, we also saw in Deuteronomy 32 that the father disciplines his child because he cares enough about what's best for his child that he's willing to bring discipline to give him the very best. So Deuteronomy 13, when Moses is passing the torch of leadership to the nation of Israel, he starts by defining this whole role as God is our heavenly Father. And it's significant to me that when Jesus in the prodigal story wants to instruct us about the gospel and about God's dealing with humanity, he takes that idea of Father because he wants us to see God in that way, one who gives us life, one who blesses, the one who protects and even one who disciplines. Today I want to look at the second aspect of the story of the prodigal, and that is the prodigal story is a story about choices. It's a story about choices. So if you want to look with me in the book of Luke, chapter 15, we won't be here long, then we'll move on to the Old Testament. But Luke chapter 15, let me set the stage by showing the choices it describes. The story picks up in verse 11 where it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided the property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off, all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered the wealth in wild living. The young son makes a choice. What does he choose? He he chooses... There's so many levels to this. He, he chooses immediate benefit over long-term benefit. He chooses what his father has to give over fellowship with his father. He chooses temporal fun in exchange for long-term obedience and blessing. See, there are a lot of things that are rolled up in that decision, but, you, but, but Jesus wants us to see that the younger son ends up where he does because of the choices he makes. The younger son ends up where he does because of the choices he makes. Now, we live in a context where we like to blame everything on somebody else, right? All ends of the spectrum of our society is blaming some, somebody for something. You know, whether it was our mother didn't treat us right or our father didn't treat us right or the government didn't treat us right. That's how we say it in East Texas. The government didn't treat us right. That that we, we all are finding someone to blame for our difficulty. And it's interesting when you look at the Scriptures all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, that's nothing new. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve get in trouble, they start blaming other people. Adam blames the woman, the woman you gave me. And also, by implication, blames God. The woman blames the serpent. And the serpent can't talk too much, so he slithers off. But the reality is that you, you have this tradition that humankind often likes to blame others. But Genesis shows us that Adam and Eve end up where they did because of the choices they made, right? And the story of the prodigal is, a, is about a young man who's made a choice. 
And as we'll see in future Sundays, he bears the consequences of those choices in a hugely significant way. But the older son makes choices as well. Skip down with me at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother came angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, and he answered his father, Look, all these years... I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I made a choice to be a good son. Yet you never gave me even a younger goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes came home, you killed the fatted calf. Same father, same home, same circumstances, same wealth to vary very different choices. So that we can look further at this, I want you to turn to another Old Testament story. In Deuteronomy 32, we looked at Moses' last words as he's about to pass the mantle on to Joshua. Today, I'd like to look at the end of the book of Joshua when Joshua gives his last words as he's about to secede leadership of the nation of Israel. So if you don't mind, if you will, turn to Joshua chapter 24 and read with me as Joshua describes the choice that the nation of Israel will have to make. Verse 1, Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Now, Shechem is one of those the towns that's not very famous. We don't even have a Shechem in East Texas. Have you ever noticed we've got Edom in East Texas? Football team's the ups. We have all kinds. Come on, come on. I know. It's, I know, it's old. It's, I, I'm sorry. It's, I didn't get much sleep last night. I'm just kind of entertaining myself. Y'all are just here. So Shechem is not one of those. But you know why it's important? You know why it's significant that this occurs in Shechem? Because in Genesis chapter 12, it's at Shechem where the Lord says to Abram, I will make you the father of many nations, and I will give you this land. So God in his sovereignty brings the nation of Israel all the way full circle after their sojourn for hundreds of years in Egypt and their, their wandering in the wilderness and their conquest of the land. Now he brings them back to Shechem where that all began as the promise. And so he, he summoned, Joshua summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel and they presented themselves before God. Verses 2 through 4, he now goes through a, a historical review of the history of Israel. Verses 2 through 4, he reminds them of the time of the patriarchs. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, and they worshiped other gods. Now, as we read this, I want you to notice who is always the subject of the action, who it is that is always starting the activities. God says, but I took your father Abram from the land beyond the river, and I led him 
throughout Canaan, and I gave him many descendants. And I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I signed the hill country to Sarah, uh, of Sarah to Esau. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. So he reminds the people through Joshua of the very beginning of the nation of Israel when he brought up the ones we call the patriarchs, the fathers who headed the family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice in each case he emphasizes that it is God the Father who is, who's provided all that we see. Verses 5 through 7, he speaks of the exodus when he brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there with the ten plagues. And I brought you out. And when I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord put darkness between you and the Egyptians. And he brought the sea over them and covered them. And you saw with your own eyes what I, the Lord is speaking again, did to the Egyptians. And then you lived in the desert for a long time. Notice again that the emphasis is on what God has done in the history of the people. Verses 8 through 10, he describes what is called the Transjordan time, the time when they're east of the Jordan before they have the conquest of the main of the land of Canaan. And I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan, and they fought against you, but I gave them into your hands, and I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. And when Balak, the son of Zippon, the king of Moab, appeared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13, he speaks of the conquest of the promised land itself. And then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. And I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. What is this section about? Joshua is about to hand off the mantle of leadership for the nation of Israel. Ironically, the next period is the one of the judges, and it's a time when the nation of Israel experiences great heartache because of their bad choices. But in preparing from that time, Joshua reminds them of all that God has done throughout the history of the nation of Israel. There's a lesson here. The beginning point of a healthy view of all of life is always gratitude for what God has done. The beginning point of a healthy attitude for all of life is always gratitude for all that God has done. If we don't begin with gratitude, we rarely end in a good place. Gratitude's kind of a lost art. As I mentioned, we live in a society now which is brilliant at making lists of our complaints. 
We're geniuses at it. We, we, we are a society that regardless of who we are, we can make a long list of all the ways that our life has been hard. But the reality is, can we be honest? We as in America, but we as believers are unbelievably blessed. We, we've experienced so many good things. But when we lose sight of all the good that we have and only concentrate on all the bad that we may have experienced, what happens to us? Our whole view of life changes. As a Christian, the most important aspect of that is it changes our view of God. Because if our lives are not blessed, then what does that say about the sovereign God whom we worship? It says he's not a source of blessing. Either he doesn't care or he's not capable of doing what we need. He he has not blessed us, therefore, he must not be a blesser. Fundamentally, it begins with our understanding of who he is. And when we view life from the terms of gratitude, that shapes and colors how we view God. Scripture says every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, the Father of lights. The reality is when, when we're honest and when we stand before God and see the ways he's blessed us, it, it causes us to be grateful for his character, his love, his power. Not only that, not only does it impact our view of God, it impacts our view of the present and the future. If I don't see the blessings of life, then I typically don't anticipate the blessings yet to come. And it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy that if I'm always looking for things to be hard, I can pretty much guarantee they will be. Whereas if I look at life in the context of God's grace and his mercy and his love and his provision, more often than that, that's what I experience. I'm convinced that being grateful is one of the most powerful things fundamentally that anyone can do. But for those of us who know Jesus Christ, it's a non-negotiable. How can you and I not be grateful when we claim a gospel that says the God of the universe who existed for all of eternity responded to our disobedience by sacrificing his own son on the cross so that he would look at us not in our own imperfection but only see the righteousness of Christ? And just as he resurrected his son on the third day, he promises to give you and me eternal life. How could I not view life from a positive perspective? And one of the things that's really encouraging for me as a pastor is when I call on some of the older saints whose health may be failing, who oftentimes candidly are lonely, in spite of all the difficulties they experience, There is a sense of gratitude because they know their Savior. And that gratitude fills the room, and I walk away being impressed what God's grace can do. When we look at life without gratitude, we make bad decisions because we make life assuming and make decisions in our life assuming either that God doesn't care or is not capable or that he will not bless and that that negativity will determine how we respond because we'll be responding to the wrong god 
Joshua is preparing to call the people of Israel to make a good decision, but he begins with a reminder of all the ways that God has shown his love to him. So that begs the question, do you have a gratitude list? I'm not talking about one you did at Pine Cove 20 years ago. Uh, do you have a current gratitude list? If, if people ask how you're doing, do, do, you, for, do I? Do I go straight to all the ways that God has blessed me, all the things that I have that I should be grateful for, or do, do my thoughts go laser-like to the one or two things that I'm not happy with? Because that shows a great deal of my perspective about who God is and how he's impacted my life. I believe that being grateful is almost sacramental. By that I mean that one of the greatest ways we experience the grace of God is when we celebrate his grace in our lives through our minds and our words in our own hearts and with other people. It reminds us of his mercy and grace, and it strengthens our faith because we are reminded how completely he's blessed us. And therefore, that gives us confidence that he will bless us in the future. But but when we roll around in the muck of our own dissatisfaction, when we lose sight of all that God has done for us, we even fail to see the blessings that he does give. Gratitude is the beginning point, according to Joshua, of making good decisions. Okay, that's too convicting. Verse 14, Joshua continues, so fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Did you notice that God is always the initiator? God never asks us to initiate. He only asks us to respond to him. Uh, You ever get in that contest with your spouse or someone you like that's kind of playing chicken? Who's going to be nice first? You know, who's going to apologize first? Who's going to be nice first? Who's going to say thank you first? You know, you kind of get into that little battle of the wills of who's going to step out and and be the first one to initiate being nice. The thing about God is he always initiates. He, he always asks us only respond to his goodness. He always goes first. And so it says, so fear the Lord and serve him with all your faithfulness in light of all he's done for you. And to the nation of Israel, he says, throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt, and instead serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, did you catch that? You can choose. You can choose. Now, I are a Presbyterian. I grew up in the Presbyterian church. We love John Calvin. We get off on election and predestination and sovereignty. That is just the froth on our latte. I mean, we just love that stuff. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we just love that stuff. It's a, it's a part of our whole theology, that whole sense of God's election and, and what God does to initiate salvation. And I believe it deeply. 
And I don't understand how this fits with it, but I also know that God makes it clear that I'm responsible to make a choice. I'm responsible to make a choice. God has blessed the people of Israel. He's initiated incredible blessing to them. But here, even in spite of all he's done, Joshua says to, on behalf of the Lord to the people of Israel, now you get to choose. You, you can continue to serving the gods that your parents served in Egypt, or you can choose to serve the Lord. And one of the things that have been very freeing to me in talking to unbelievers is to realize that God gave them the right to choose not to believe. They have absolutely a right not to believe. And so it's, it's my responsibility to honor that right. It's their choice. But notice that Joshua will not let them wiggle out of that choice. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the other gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living now. But then Joshua does what every great leader does. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will choose to serve God because of all that he's done for us. If you skip on down, verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord. So it was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt. So verse 18, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And Joshua does something really crazy. He says, you know, God is a holy and jealous God, and I'm really not sure you will because you keep messing up. That's the power of positive thinking. Um, verse 21, they say, no, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua leads the people, and they put a large stone, verse 26, up under the tree at Shechem as a reminder of their renewal of their commitment, their covenant with God, that they will serve him. Because reminders of old commitments are always good. That's why we wear wedding rings. That's why we make historical markers because we need those physical reminders. But what about us? What are we choosing? First of all, Scripture says that each one has a responsibility to choose to respond to the gospel. I don't understand how it all works, but I know that God allows people to respond to the gospel when they hear it in their lives. How will they hear except they have a preacher? There has to be someone who goes and proclaims it. But individuals have the right to respond either positively or negatively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you've never embraced him, I urge you to consider what Scripture says about him and what Christians have believed for 2,000 years that he is the eternal Son of God who coexisted with the Father and the Spirit throughout eternity and that he came to earth by his choice and that of the Father and lived a perfect life on earth and died for the sins of the world so that whoever trusts in him can have eternal life as signified by his resurrection from the dead. No more significant decision will impact your life. But men and women, even as the people of God, you realize we have to make a choice every day? 
Every day we make a choice whether we will live out the consequences of the gospel in our lives or whether we'll pretend that we didn't. Our salvation is sure because it's, it's rooted in our trust in God and God alone. But every day we make choices, just like the prodigal and his big brother did. Every day we decide who will serve that day. Will we serve our own selfish desires or will we serve the desires of those who are around us that depend on us? We, will we, how will we serve with our, our money, our gifts, our assets, the things that God has blessed us? Are those just for us? Or are they given by God? Then how will we choose to respond with them? We, we, we make decisions about how we'll respond to other human beings, whether they're nice or not, and whether we'll love them or not. We make decisions of character, whether we'll have integrity be consistent in our obedience to God or, or live as though He really doesn't matter. Because one of the truths of the story of the prodigal is that while God is the great initiator, our Father, who gave us life, who sustains us, who protects us and disciplines us, at the end of the day, our choices will go a long way in determining the nature of the life we live. Joshua had paid a huge price for his obedience. He, he served God by serving a difficult, stiff-necked people. But at the end of his life, he said, you can choose whomever you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So who are we serving? We're all serving something. What's our decision? What will the consequences of those decisions be in our lives? Pray for the decisions of your children. Pray for the decisions of your leaders. But more than anything, pray for your own decisions that we will decide to do things consistently with what we claim in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we often aren't consistent. In spite of the fact that we understand and know that you've blessed us in more ways than we count, we oftentimes live as though it's all up to us. And many times there's an absence of gratefulness for all that you've done. And because we're not grateful, we don't take you into consideration of the decisions we make. Lord, reshape our heart so that we see through life through the lens of gratitude. Help us to praise you continually for all the things you've done. And help us then to decide to follow you in our decisions because we can trust your love, your power, and your faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.